0: What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Crime Ghoul, where I am your true crime podcast host, Brittany. Thank you for joining me. I apologize for my um, disappearance act I did on Monday. I know I didn't really notify anybody what was going on or why I didn't put out an episode. I didn't really give a forewarning that I wasn't going to put out an episode. And that's mainly because I didn't know that I was going to, if that makes sense. If you live in America like I do, which a lot of you do, um, you'll know about this presidential election right now and how crazy it's been. And I am pretty heavy into politics just because I like to be aware of what's going on in my country. I like to be well-informed and educated in that sense. But it's been very toxic lately, as I'm sure you all know, and I'm sure all of you guys in other countries are able to sit back and see what's been going on here. So I've been... Since Election Day last Tuesday, I've been on social media, which has been a battleground and battlefield, I should say, of nothing but people fighting with their friends, their family, their cohorts, their from school, their coworkers from work. And I just got so sucked into that. And I couldn't wrap my mind around all of the hatred that was going around. And it's honestly very saddening. So I just dove really deep into that and I shouldn't have because it took away from my personal life and the concentration on my work life and everything that's positive to me. I just got very sucked into the toxicity of it all. So don't get me wrong, I'm still going to be involved with everything that's going on because I think it's really important to have an idea of what's going on in the country. But I just had to take a step back from social media for a day or two to cleanse my soul of all the demons that is politics politicians and politics. So here I am, and I'm back. I'm giving you an episode on this lovely Wednesday evening. Happy hump day. I hope you like it. I'm continuing with this whole Notorious November theme. I gave you Ed Kemper last week, and this, well, and today, this week, I'm going to be giving you the BTK Killer. Now, if you're a huge crime enthusiast like I am, chances are you already know who he is. You might know a little bit about him, And if you haven't heard about him, I'm really excited that I'm going to be the first um, form of information that you get about this guy and this crime, well, the crimes he committed, I should say. So cozy on up, which is so weird to say when I'm discussing such morbid topics, but sure enough, cozy on up, enjoy this lovely Wednesday evening take a step back to kind of just be in the moment with me. I know I always feel weird saying this, but my best moments are when I'm alone watching true crime, whether it's cold case files, unsolved mysteries, forensic files, investigation, discovery, you name it. Those are my happy moments. And I don't know why, but Clearly you guys are a lot like me, otherwise you would not be tuning in right now, so just be with me here in this moment, cozy on up, go brew yourself a cup of coffee, if not that, grab a glass of wine, or definitely, definitely suggest taking a shot of whiskey, because not only has it been one hell of a week into two weeks, but this crime case is not for the faint of heart, and it does have some pretty disturbing material, so you have been warned. If you're easily triggered, then this is definitely not the episode or the podcast for you. But I am going to be talking about violence that is geared towards women, men, adults, and children. So if that's not something you want to hear about, turn back now, as I would like to say, because you're not going to be very happy with this episode. Otherwise, if you're ready for that, let's get to it. And as always, thank you for listening. So, I want you guys to imagine being in your home. You know, it's a normal night, and suddenly a sick, twisted man enters your dwelling, your bubble, your bubble of safety, the place where you're the most comfortable. It's January 15th, 1974, and we are in Wichita, Kansas. 38-year-old Joseph Otero, 33-Julie Otero, 11-year-old Josephine, and 9-year-old Joseph Jr. were brutally murdered. The worst part? Their eldest son, who was in 10th grade, would be the person to find this grisly scene. So you see at around 7 p.m. January 15th, a seriously disturbed man waited in the backyard of the Otero family. He selected this family mainly because he fancied Julie and Josephine. He didn't know them, didn't know them from a hole in the wall. But that night, he did not plan on Mr. Otero being home. Joe Jr. opened the back door to let out their family dog, and that's when a monster walked into their home. He immediately went to the living room and held the family at gunpoint. He told them he wanted their car and some food and that he was a fugitive on the run, and that he'd tie them up and, you know, let them be on their merry way. So the man decides to lead them to the bedroom. He has Julie, Joseph, and Joe Jr. lie on the bedroom floor on their stomachs. He ties their hands and feet. Oh, hands and feet. (laughs) They're on their stomachs. They're defenseless. They have a gun pointed to them the whole time. So, of course, they're cooperating with this guy. They want to live. So this terrifying individual is about to act out one of his murderous fantasies and This would actually be the first murders he ever commits. So for a brief moment, this man thinks about walking away and leaving this family. He sees them on the floor. He knows what he's about to do. And just for a blip in the universe, snap of the fingers, that moment just fleets and it passes by. The man himself, we would later find out, is actually married. He has a wife and he has two children. So I guess there was a bit of humanity in him for not very long, obviously but he soon realizes that he doesn't have a mask on and that this family would easily, easily be able to identify him. So he takes a plastic bag and he places it over Joseph Sr.'s head. He was getting ready to strangle Julie when all of a sudden Joseph is struggling. He actually poked a hole in the bag and was struggling to breathe. He was gasping for air. He placed a cloth over the hole and he strangled Joseph to death with a cord. He then strangled Julie. She passed out. He thought she was dead, too. He strangled Joe Jr., and in this moment, as he's trying to finish up with Joe Jr., Julie is gasping for air as well. She, too, poked a hole in her bag and was struggling for life. So he goes back to Julie, and he takes the bag off her head. She's begging him, please don't kill my son. Spare my my children, just take me. You already took my husband. And the guy's kind of like, yeah, whatever. And he goes on and he strangles Julie. Then he goes and he puts a bag over Joe Jr.'s head again. And there is evidence that he pulled a chair over and he must have sat and watched the boy struggle to stay alive. He then strangled him to death to make sure that he would not wake up like the other two did before him. The man picks up young Josephine and he brings her to the basement to commit what would be just a heinous, disgusting act as if what he has done already wasn't bad enough. He hangs Josephine in the basement. And the worst part of it all is as he's hanging her, he's tightening the rope, releasing the rope, tightening, releasing. So he's constricting her from breathing, but also giving her that air. And this was exciting him because in this moment, he was God. He was, he was providing this girl with life and death, and he knew he had all of the control. And unfortunately, he would end up taking young Josephine's life and hung her. After that, he would do something so disgusting. It actually pains me to even say it out loud to you guys, but he would end up pleasuring himself and finishing in the basement so after that he cleaned up he got all of his stuff together he had a hit kit with him that's what he called it and this was just a kit full of supplies for him to take out this family and for reasons unknown to even himself he would end up stealing Mr. Otero's watch and a radio from the home and then he fled the scene And just like that, a monster was on the loose. He vanished into the night. And between the spring of 1974 and 1977, this would not be the last time that this monster committed such heinous acts. He would claim the lives of three more women. Like a black hole, he just swallowed them up. So I bring you next to April of 1974, and I'm going to talk to you about Catherine Bright, his next victim. You have to understand that this man considered his victims projects. He called them projects. He didn't see these people as humans, like you and I see people. He would select various people in town and he would stalk them. Some were lucky enough to be left as observations while others would fall victim to his evil and the evil in its purest form. He would spend much of his time driving through neighborhoods looking for suitable victims and he would call this trolling. Unfortunately, Catherine Bright had fancied him a great deal. He was in the stalking phase with Catherine, and ultimately, he decided to act on his sick lurking behavior and knew that she would be the next target. He'd been driving by her home and noticed that she wasn't home. He decided this was it. This was going to be the moment where he broke into her home and he would wait for her. Catherine did eventually come home, but she wasn't alone. She was in the company of her brother, Kevin. And you see, the monster had a way of making his prey feel at ease, an amazing trick, if you will. He would approach the two in their own home, and just like the Oteros, he told the Brights he was wanted in California, he was a fugitive on the run, he just needed to take their car, he needed clothing, and he needed food, and he needed it now. It's amazing to me for someone so inhumane, he was quite of, he was quite aware, very aware of how a human would think. The Brights let their guard down, and I'm sure they reassured themselves, you know, it's okay, this this bizarre dude needs our car, just give it to him, get him out of here as fast as we can, just give him what he wants and he'll go away. But unfortunately, it was not that easy. They moved to the bedroom while held at gunpoint, where the man had Kevin tie up Catherine, and then he tied up Kevin. The man made sure Kevin was tied to the bedpost so he couldn't run away. He He brought Catherine into another bedroom, and he did the same thing to her. He would return to Kevin, and they got into an altercation. He was trying to strangle Kevin, but he was putting up a fight, and he actually broke free. Before Kevin had a chance to continue fighting, the monster shot him in the head, and just like that, Kevin fell straight to the ground. The evil made its way back to Catherine. As he strangled her, she broke out of her bonds, just like her brother, and now they were hand-to-hand battling. She was battling for her life. The monster thought he had won. He left her. He thought he strangled her, he thought he beat her enough, and he heard movement in the other room, and what would you know? Kevin was still alive, even though he had been shot in the head. He was alive. So the man ran back to the room, he strangled Kevin, but Kevin jumped up and he grabbed the man's gun and he actually shot the man with his own gun. Unfortunately, evil is always prepared people. He had a second gun and he shot Kevin another time. He went back to Catherine, who was also still alive, to his surprise, and they began to fight again. Catherine would not give up, but as I said, evil is always prepared. The man stabbed Catherine in the back under her ribs. These wounds would end up being fatal. In the meantime, Kevin, who was still alive, managed to run for his life out the front door. He wanted to find help. In this moment, the monster fled yet another scene. He would try to escape in the Brights car, but he was unsuccessful. So on foot, he ran back to where he had originally parked his car, which was blocks away. It's crazy how this guy, he he clearly just would think he killed these people and he didn't, just like the Otero family, which is so frightening in its own sense, because these people would come back. To like breathing and realize oh shit i am in quite the predicament and this man would come back and he would fi- try to finish them and unfortunately Catherine would end up becoming victim to him the next victim would be at random and this was shirley vianne shirley was unlike the other victims she was not a planned project the monster planned to go to another target's home However, when he arrived and knocked on that person's door, nobody answered. What a lucky day for them. He had photos of potential targets, and while walking through the neighborhood, he came across a little boy and asked him to identify a photograph of someone. And he asked the boy if he knew who they were and if he knew where they lived. The boy pointed out the home. However, nobody was at that residence either when the man knocked on the door. So the monster decided to go where the little boy had gone. He knocked on the door and Shirley answered. The monster played the part of private investigator and kind of barged his way into the home. He had a gun with him, so this helped him. Quickly, Shirley realized the darkness that just entered her home. The man switched gears and told Shirley of his sexual fantasies. Shirley had been in her nightrobe. She appeared to be sick, and now she had a lunatic bothering her and her family. He told her that he was going to tie her up and he would tie the kids up. And he just needed them to cooperate. The children began crying and he realized that this would not work. So he explained that they were going to have to move them into the bathroom. And of course, Shirley didn't want to cause any trouble. She was worrying about the safety of herself and her kids. So she complied. They tied the bathroom door shut where they put the children and Shirley helped push the bed up against the door. He began to tie her up and from her nerves, from feeling sick, she threw up everywhere. The man got her a glass of water and he consoled her. However, this kindness was some sick attempt to get Shirley to let her guard down. He tied her up and he placed the plastic bag over her head and he strangled her to death. The children were banging on the bathroom door and they were yelling and they were just begging to be let out, begging for their mom to be left alone. And that's when the telephone began to ring. He got spooked. He quickly cleaned up He put his extra rope back into his briefcase, or his hit kit, as he liked to call it, and he quickly fled the scene, vanishing yet again. The children, unfortunately, were witness to what he had done, in a sense that they could hear what was going on through the door. They could see through a gap between the door and the wall. They knew that their mom wasn't okay, and unfortunately, they would be the ones to find her dead. Later, BTK would send one of what would become many letters to the local media. He sent a sarcastic poem to them, and it was titled Shirley Locks. Ugh, just disgusting. Nancy Fox would be the man's next project. He had been stalking the 25-year-old. He found out her name by going through her mail. He also learned that she worked as a clerk at a jewelry store. So after watching her over three or so occasions, he decided to make his move. He knew what time she came home, so he approached her door and knocked, but no one answered. So he knew he was in the clear. He knew she hadn't gotten home yet. He went through the back of her apartment. He entered, cutting the phone line, and he waited for her arrival in the kitchen. When Nancy got home, she was presented with a man whom she did not know. She did not recognize him. He had her at gunpoint and explained that he had a sexual problem, and in order to get rid of this issue, he had to tie her up and rape her. She had a cigarette and asked to use the bathroom, and he said yes. I couldn't imagine, like, she was basically like, let's get it over with, as I read in a lot of my research. Well, that's what BTK says. Who knows what's really true? But he directed her to undress, and she came out of the bathroom partly disrobed. He ordered her into the bedroom and tied her up. He undressed himself. He immediately began to strangle her with a belt, and he strangled as he strangled her, he confessed to her who he was and what he had been doing. He strangled her to death and then pleasured himself leaving semen on her nightgown. The next day, the man called the police and tipped them off about Nancy. The depravity wouldn't stop there. No, not at all. It actually seeped into the community and quickly made its way onto television. He would send a second letter to the TV station in Wichita, Kansas called K-A-K-E. In this letter, he would claim responsibility for the slangs of the Otero family and the three other women he had murdered. He demanded media attention. He wanted his killings to be publicized all over the news, and he suggested they give him the name B-T-K. This would stick around, and it standard for bind, torture, and kill. He also spoke of something called the factor x in his letter and he described this to be something supernatural that actually caused him and other notorious murderers to kill he would later send another sarcastic poem to the media this one being titled "O oh death to nancy mocking the murder of nancy fox btk's next kill wouldn't occur occur until 1985 so he sent his final poem In 1977, so he was kind of dormant for a while. And boy, did he do some weird shit during his cool off period. And if you guys don't know what a cooling off period is, it's kind of like a hiatus or a pause in activity. This man had a son, and at the time, his son was a member of the Cub Scouts. They would go on trips, and the man would be a chaperone along with some other parents. And during this time, he would disappear into the woods and he would tie himself up and take photographs of himself in weird and bizarre positions. Sometimes he would be dressed in women's clothing or in just his underwear and he would always wear a mask that looked like a doll's face. He would wrap himself up in bondage and he even went as far to dig a hole that looked like a grave and he wrapped himself in plastic and he laid in this makeshift grave and took photos of himself. It was as if he was staging a sick crime scene and these photos were just getting him off. He was his own muse and I guess he acted as a woman it you know he was acting out his dark fantasies he was the female and he created the crime scene and he was supposed to be like a dead female and this was really really arousing to him and then he went on to do something extremely bizarre even more bizarre than I've told you and he would hang himself from a tree and he was hanging while wrapped in bondage i don't know how he hoisted his freaking ass up here to do that but he did and at one point the scouts were looking for him in the woods and they almost found him doing this because he got stuck in a tree and somehow he was able to get down quick enough and they would have found him wrapped in bondage with a creepy mask on in his underwear so for like lucky for him he was able to get down and hide. It seemed he got lucky quite often, and it just wasn't fair, because how embarrassing would that moment have been, especially for that child? The possibility of being discovered doing these bizarre acts also aroused him, though. It was like an adrenaline rush. And this held him over for a while, and I think that's kind of why he didn't need to kill. He was too busy doing risky things. Um, really, I'm to me, it's just like the, the things he was doing was just disgusting. It, they just gross me out. And definitely check out my Instagram or my Facebook. The Instagram is crime ghoul underscore. My Facebook's crime ghoul. I'm going to post photos of this man in weird positions because you guys have to see it. Like I'm not going to go as far to post his victims because I don't think a lot of you guys need to see that. They are pictures that will be burned into your memory forever, and if you want to do that, it's takes a simple google search for you to be able to look at that stuff but i'm not going to be posting that on my media but i will post these bizarre things like pictures he took of himself and some other crime scene photos that aren't too distressing and you'll see how freaking creepy it is so other things that would hold him over actually he had taken photos of his other victims so the otero family uh katherine bright Nancy Fox, Shirley, he had pictures to hold him over, and these would bring pleasure to him. He kept them as souvenirs, and it's just disturbing to think that he would sexually pleasure himself while looking at these photos of corpses. So like I said, we're in 1985 now. He would get back into killing, and at this point in time, he was a council member of the church that he had gone to. So he had the keys to this establishment, and he was about to carry out one of his dark fantasies yet again. His next project was to be Marine Hedge. She was a 53-year-old woman and a widow. She lived on the same block as BTK, so he was getting pretty ballsy, if you ask me. And he had been at a Cub Scout meeting when he said he needed to leave due to a headache. Instead, he ended up stopping at a bowling alley for a beer He acted drunk and called a cab. I don't really know why he was acting drunk or what the significance was of him acting drunk, but I guess maybe so he can leave his car. So maybe the bartender would know not to like have his car towed or anything like that. But he called a cab. He had the driver drop him off in his own town of Park City, Kansas, and he decided that he was going to kill Maureen Hedges. He saw her car in the driveway and figured she was home. As always, he went in the back. He cut the phone line and he entered her home. To his surprise, no one was home, but the car was in the driveway, so he waited in her bedroom, and he waited for a long time until finally a car pulled up in the driveway. Maureen was home, but she was with a man. She wasn't alone. So BTK waited it out. He waited in her bedroom closet the whole time until the man left, and by that time, it was around 1 a.m., and Maureen went to bed. This is when he stepped out of the closet, he turned on the bathroom light in her bedroom, and he jumped on top of her and strangled her to death. He strangled her in her own bed as she was falling into sleep. That's one of the most terrifying things. I'm terrified of the monster in the closet, and this monster is real. And Maureen met the fate of a real-life monster hiding in her closet. Just think about that. Let that sink in for two seconds, and it's horrifying. So after he strangled her to death, he put her body in his car, and he drove her body to his church he knew no one was going to be there he had the keys and he had black garbage bags in this church so he put black garbage bags on the windows so no one could see inside and he posed her body in different bondage positions and took pictures of her inside of the church he then put her back in his car and he dumped her in a ditch alongside the road and left her he wouldn't kill again until 1986 and Vicki were girl Weggirl, we girl? I'm sorry, I'm so botching her name. Vicky Weggirl. Someone please correct my dumbass. Anyway, this woman would be his next victim. She was a 20 year old, eight year old woman with her 2-year-old son. She was always home watching him. She was a beautiful blonde woman. And Vicky caught BTK's eye one day as he was walking down her neighborhood street. She had been playing the piano and he stopped outside the house to listen. And from there on out, he would walk by her house often and listen to her play that piano. BTK planned out her murder for a while. He decided one day to dress up as a telephone repairman, and he showed up at her house around 10 a.m., knocked on her door. Vicky answered, and she let him in, unfortunately, thinking that he must be there to actually fix their phone. And let me tell you, ladies and gents out there, if you're ever home alone and some weird repairman shows up or serviceman shows up saying they need to do some shit in your home, they need to fix something, and you did not call them, your spouse didn't call them, your roommate didn't call them, whoever the hell, they didn't tell you they called them. Don't trust this person. The worst thing that could happen is you tell them to skedaddle, and later your your significant other or your friend says, hey, yeah, no, I did call them, I'm sorry, I completely forgot to tell you. Oh, well, then there's a pissed telephone repairman boo-hoo, at least you're safe. But if you didn't request a service or anything like that and nobody told you, better safe than sorry. You can't trust a damn person in this world these days. Don't let them into your home. But unfortunately, Vicky was naive and it was a different time back then. People could be trusted. There was murder going on, but it was mostly located on the West Coast and on the East Coast in New York State. Murder never really came to the heartland. BTK would be the first really the first big-time murderer to come to this quiet, quintessential area. But instead of BTK fixing any phone line, he would cut the phone line. He approached Vicky and told her he was going to tie her up. At gunpoint, he led her to the bedroom where he attempted to tie her up, but she was a fighter and she fought him. He, she dug her nails into his skin. He try, She tried to evade his grasp. And he would end up grabbing one of his ropes and, unfortunately, would choke her to death. After he killed her, he positioned her body in various ways and again photographed the scene. He stole the family car and he vanished yet again, evading any detection. Vicky would be found by her husband, and thankfully their two-year-old son was not harmed. But this child was now without a mother, and her husband was now a widow. It's just uncanny. BTK actually drove past the husband in the stolen car. The husband didn't recognize the driver, but he did note on his way home that he saw the same car his wife owned, which was interesting. But later he found out that it was their car, and I can't imagine what sinking feeling overcame him when that dark realization set in that he passed the killer, the man who killed his wife, his child's mother. The car was actually found abandoned a few blocks away, and the sick part of this the husband remained the prime suspect of his wife's murder for the next years to come, always having the finger pointed at him, his family speculating about him. And this is mainly because usually when you're murdered, when somebody's murdered, it's by somebody they know. In this era, in the late 70s, early 80s, this was really the first time we were seeing murderers killing people by random. This was out of the ordinary. So, of course, people you know, the first guess was that the husband did it. Unfortunately for this husband, I don't even know how he was able to grieve properly while being pointed at in all directions. So 1991 would come. This would be now a four-year hiatus. So BTK would strike yet again, and Dolores Davis would be his final victim. And through BTK's experience killing, he found that older women were more vulnerable and easier to kill, which, weirdly enough, to say this obviously makes sense but obviously for most people as you get older your strength isn't the same your stamina is not the same so of course the elderly are easier to prey upon which is disgusting that he would target these women just because they were older it's horrible that he targeted anybody okay anyone disgusting so he scoped out the six-year-old woman knowing she lived alone and Because she lived alone, this really made her his prime target, and the opportune moment arised for him to carry out this murder because he was camping with his son's Boy Scout group, and he came up with an excuse to slip away from one of their meetings yet again. He then drove to his parents' house where he left his car. He changed out of the the Cub Scout uniform into what he would call his hit clothes, I guess to keep his uniform from getting dirty and nasty. He then drove to his church, he left his car, and he headed to Dolores' house on foot. He would wait outside in the bushes until she fell asleep. And when she finally went to bed, he took a cement brick and threw it through her bedroom window. Now, when I first read this, I was like, holy hell, I couldn't imagine laying down in bed and all of a sudden, a freaking huge brick cement coming through my window, crashing through my glass. That would startle the living shit out of me. I don't know about you guys, but that's loud. And at first I was surprised. I was like, how did the neighbors not hear this? This was a, a cement brick that went through the window. But let me tell you a little story real quick. Somebody actually broke into my house. Luckily I hadn't been, ho- been home, but my mom and my brother were home. They broke through the glass of our front door and my mom did hear it, but she thought it was my brother dropping like a glass downstairs in the kitchen or something. And i You would think that maybe a neighbor would hear something, but when you think about it and you're in your house, think about how many things that go on in your neighborhood that you don't hear. Even like being next door, these these walls are thick people, and in my head immediately I was like, Oh man, I, I hope a neighbor would hear. I hope the neighbor would get involved, but no, it just it's not as loud as you think it is, especially when you're in another house. So that's my little antidote there. But Dolores, of course, woke up to the crashing noise and She was presented with this man standing in front of her and she was like, what the hell is happening? And he would use the same fugitive story like I'm wanted in California. I need your car. I need food. I need clothing. I need you to get it for me now. And of course, she was cooperating. He then tied her up in the bedroom and he would strangle her to death. He would take her body out of the house and put her in the trunk of her own car. He then drove her car to a lake nearby and hid her body and the evidence under some trees. He drove back to Dolores' house, cleaned up anything that might have been disarrayed, and he wiped down for fingerprints, and he returned to the church where he got his car back and he put his uniform back on. Well, actually, no, excuse me. He didn't put his uniform back on, but he did get his car. He drove back to Dolores' hidden body near the lake then placed it in his trunk and dumped the body under a nearby bridge. I guess he thought that this bridge was a better hiding place. Then he would go back to his parents' house, put on his uniform, and he would return to the campground like nothing ever happened. The next time, well, the next night, I mean, he would actually return to Dolores' body and he took pictures of her corpse and then left her there. So now this brings us to yet a ne- another cooling off period. So he w- he remained quiet from 1991 to 2004, and that is a long time, people, for a killer to re- remain dormant. But the scary thing is that's kind of not unheard of for these killers. So 2004 would come and the local newspaper would run an article about BTK's crimes, And it would speak of these unsolved murderers and how it haunted the local town because we had no idea who killed these people. We knew that there was a killer out there that he would bind his victims and he would kill them. So it was clear that he had a signature and that was binding people and that he would be able to kill these people without them struggling. Like some would struggle more than others, but for the most part, the people that they could clearly match to the BTK killings weren't struggling and they didn't know why and then you have to think about that the one woman who was dead and her husband was being blamed for it and we still didn't know that that was tied together so the killer saw this news article because obviously he lived local and it pissed him off there was also a book by robert Beatty that came out and it was about his about this unknown btk killer and This infuriated him as well, because he felt that they were trying to tell his own story, and the only person who could tell a story was him. So, I mean, they were telling his story, and that was it. He was pissed. He needed to do something about this. Clearly, he's a narcissist, and he needs attention, so... In March 2004, he would write a letter to the media and it, it contained three photographs of Vicky's body and her driver's license. He signed it with his infamous signature, which I'm going to post on my Instagram so you guys could see what that looked like. Very bizarre. The FBI would investigate the letter and the killer was now back in the spotlight. Just what he wanted. So this wouldn't be the end of sending stuff to the media. He was back at it again. He would send a cryptic word puzzle in May of 2004 Then June would come and he would tape a sign in the city with a gruesome description of the Otero family murders that only the killer would know. I guess this was his way of proving like, yeah, I'm the real killer. Nobody else is. Nobody knows the story. Only I do. And he also provided a sketch of a body hanging by a rope. He would also leave a package at the local library describing that time was running out for him and that he knew he was going to carry out another hit. Fast forward to October of 2004, he'd leave yet another package. And this was found by a UPS driver, and it was a clause of children cr- cut from a magazine with bondage drawn on them. And it also contained a fake autobiography of himself in hopes of misleading the police. Now, this scares me because if he, like, I'm going to tell you how he was caught, but had he not been caught, He was getting ready to do another hit. Was he going to kill children? Was he now fascinated by killing more children and putting them in bondage? Because why else make a magazine, I mean a collage full of cutout magazine photos of children? He already killed Josephine. He was going to kill Shirley's kids if that phone didn't ring. So I am left to believe that had he not been caught, he was going to kill children. It seemed that he did not give a shit between adult and child. He had no set of morals, which I mean, I guess you really can't, but that's what I really believe from all this. So later, he'd leave a special K cereal box in the back of a random pickup truck, and it had BTK carved into it and the word bomb carved into it. And inside were descriptions of his killings and some evidence of him stalking his victims. It also included more false information about him to mislead law enforcement further. He would ask a question in the letter inside the box, and he wanted to know if he sent a floppy disk to the media, if it would be traced back to his computer. So the police would answer BTK's question in the media, and they told him that, no, a floppy floppy disk can't be tracked back to a computer, which was ultimately a lie. So... Now we're in January of 2005, and he would leave more packages, and one consisted of a cereal box with a Barbie doll inside. The doll was brunette and tan skin, and it was tied to piping. So this was clearly a sick reenactment of young Josephine Otero's death, and how he hung her from a pipe in her own basement. So this just leads me to believe even more that he wanted to kill a child. Like, here he is, not just drawing a picture, not just writing a letter, but actually taking a barbie doll and hanging it from a piece of piping like that just says it all people i truly believe he was getting ready to kill a child so he would then send a postcard to the media letting them know that he would soon be sending a floppy disk which he finally would send the floppy disk and ultimately it was traced back to his church the police would trace it back to his church and at this point in time in 2005 They found the church, and they saw who the president was, and the president of the church was a man by the name of Dennis Rader. So the police would drive by his house, and from information they didn't really provide in the media, they knew there was a car that they would see on past security security videos while observing these crimes that were very similar in nature, and it was a black Jeep Cherokee. What would you know? Dennis Rader had a black Jeep Cherokee, so they knew they were definitely on the right path. And one day they dropped by his house and he wouldn't be home, but his daughter, Carrie, answered the door. They asked her for a DNA sample and told her it was strictly for medical records. So, of course, she willingly gave these nice policemen and law enforcement a sample of her DNA, some saliva. And when they ran the DNA with the semen that was left at these crime scenes, voila, it produced a match. They finally had their guy. The monster that loomed over Wichita, Kansas, was going to be put to a stop. He was soon apprehended after eating his lunch at his job. And then he was rushed right into a court trial right after. Family was obviously sickened when they heard of what he did. His family and friends couldn't begin to wrap their mind around the fact that this Dennis Rader, that he was capable of doing these things. For God's sakes, he was a Cub Scout leader for his son's Cub Scout group or Boy Scouts, whatever the heck you want to call it. He was a church man. He was a family man. He was the president of his church. People looked up to him. And he, you know what? He also had a job installing security cameras into homes, which made it a whole lot easier to spy on certain people. He became um, not a um, police officer. But, you know, one of those people who go around and make sure your grass is trimmed to the right length, that your dog isn't loose, and so on. And he was actually taunting housewives about their dogs getting loose. One housewife went on to say that she believed that this man actually killed her dog. So she was not shocked when she saw him in the media. And this job was great for Dennis because it was a way of power. He had power. Um, this was his way of articulating power in the community. And it's just. It's sick. It's sick and twisted this man, I will tell you. But his his family just obviously devastated his daughter devastated. If you go online, there's so many interviews with her and like what it was like when she came to know that her father was a murderer. And his wife quickly got a divorce from him and the law like law enforcement actually allowed her to get a speedy divorce from this man because of how disgusting and vile his crimes were. They Obviously, you couldn't blame her, so give the girl an out. Let her get the hell out of there. And luckily, his wife was safe. He never abused her. He was a good family man. He was a good father, and I know that's really hard to believe, but he never harmed his family. He only harmed his these victims, which is just so, so disturbing. And now, as he was in court, he would have to go on and you know, plead guilty to everything he did, which he did. And he was, I will say, in the only aspect, a man about that. He didn't turn around and say, you know, oh, I'm pleading insanity, da da, da da trying to get a later sentence. No, he did acknowledge that what he did was sick and he was very impulsive and he couldn't stop. And he came forward with everything he did. And unfortunately, in these court hearings, the family members of these victims, the children, the the husband's just the parents, they were present. They heard what he did, and he went into detail. He spared no detail about what he did to these people, and it's just things that are going to stick with these people forever and ever. But I was really happy to know that that husband um, of that one victim, his name was cleared, and it was finalized that BTK had killed his wife, and he was able to finally mourn in peace about his wife and. I mean, there was a lot of um, questions answered, and for some of the families, you know, there was a sense of relief and kind of closure, but in the same sense, that pain never really goes away, of course. I'm sure we could imagine that. So, you know, court came to an end. He was guilty on all counts of murder, and he was placed in prison where he still remains. He is in prison for the rest of his life. He was. A sexual sadist, of course, and had that type of disorder. And even from prison, he still draws women in bondage in really painful positions and other sexually geared, disturbing drawings. So, you know, if he was out in public, I'm sure he would still be doing the same damn thing. So now I'm guessing you're all wondering why. Why in the hell did this guy do these things? What was it? Well, people, I'm going to tell you right now, and you're not going to like the answer. We don't truly know. I mean, we can guess. We can definitely guess. But do we actually know? I can't say we do. But I'm sure you all have heard of the nature versus nurture debate. You know, a killer. Are they a killer because they were born that way? Or is it their environment that made them that way? Or is it a little bit of both? Well, in this sense, from what I've read, it really seems he was kind of born with a a very aggressive and violent personality. And I say this because he was brought up with his siblings and he will tell you, well, not that you're going to go ask him, but if you go read up on him, the research shows that he grew up in a pretty good, loving home. However, it was a bit neglectful. And I'll say that because his parents were very hard middle-class workers. They were more lower middle-class, I should say. And they worked They weren't both home for their kids. The kids were home by themselves. They didn't really get all the attention they needed from their parents. And I'm sure that was a mix of working long hours and coming home exhausted. So there really was no attention in that aspect for Dennis. And I'm sure that's why he would crave the attention he did with the media and how he kind of soaked up that attention because of it and why he really enjoyed getting their attention. In those moments where he was in touch with the media, he was important to them, you know, and he was soaking that up. While researching him, I did find um, that around eight years old was when he first saw his grandmother kill chickens and she had a farm. So it's not out of the ordinary to kill chickens, to consume them. So he had witnessed that. And even at eight years old, he said that he would get excited about it. Like when she had to kill the chickens, he wanted to be present. And that was from eight years old. No eight year old is really getting excited over that. I think the majority of eight year olds would cry or be upset because the cute little feathery chicken is getting killed. I mean, for God's sake, I can't, I gotta help a fly if it falls in the pool. I gotta get the fly out of the pool water so it can just fly away. I can't even handle that. So that obviously is a red flag right there that nobody really ever you know, addressed. The grandma had to, I'm sure the grandma had to have been like, what the hell's with this kid? He doesn't mind seeing chickens killed, but I guess she just didn't question it for whatever reason. So yeah, there was that. And his friends would come forward in one of the documentaries I watched. And well, it wasn't really a friend. It was more of a, a school acquaintance. And he would describe Dennis as being violent towards animals and how all of their friends would go down to the creek and they would, you know, They would hunt animals sometimes with the BB gun or whatever, but Dennis would take it further and he would seek out turtles in the creek and he would torture the turtle. He would kill it viciously. He would hang the turtle from a tree. And I'm sorry, all of you animal lovers like me, I know that's a little rough to hear, but it's true. Like he tortured the turtles and that was like from 13 years old and on. So obviously we all know precursors of of becoming a killer or killing animals. And it was there, but nobody really ever addressed it. He didn't have anybody watching him that closely to be like, hey, he's killing animals. It kind of reminds me of Ted Bundy because Bundy would kill animals and he would scare kids in his neighborhood to get a rise out of them. And he got off on that. And nobody ever really honed into it too much. They just thought, oh, it's a little boy being a boy. But no, there's a difference between a boy being a boy and acting out his boyhood and a boy being sadistic and hurtful. So that's it, people. You know, he didn't really come from a terrible family. It just so happens. I think he was born with certain genetics. He was predisposed to certain genes and that accompanied with negligence from his parents. I think it just manifested into this and he became a killer. And I think there's really not much to it. I don't know if there's much to add to it, but I think sometimes the parsimonious answer is the most real answer we could get, so it's just the simple answer, and I mean, I'm no professional, but that's my opinion, and I think that's what it is, so yeah, Dennis Rader is still alive, and he is living out his miserable life in prison, and that's where we are, people, that is the BTK killer, bind, torture, kill, Dennis Rader, so Tell me what you think. Go on my social media. Check out my Instagram, Crime Ghoul underscore. Check out my Facebook, Crime Ghoul, my Twitter, Crime Ghoul, where I just love to talk about all things crime. Let me know what you thought about the episode. You know, tell me about any notorious killers you're interested in hearing about. We only have a little bit of November left, which is crazy to say, and I've got some I've got some ideas for, for you guys, but I would like to know if there's something specific you want to hear about. So definitely leave me a comment. Tell me how you, how you felt about the episode. Did you like the Ed Kemper episode better or so far is BTK a better episode? So I'd love to hear about all those things. And as always, if you're looking to help me out because my, um, my podcast isn't free. I do pay into it to have my podcast on platforms Because I want to make sure it gets out to as many people as possible so I can find more people that like to hear about and talk about the things that I like to talk about. This podcast is is special to me, and you all are very special to me. So if you're feeling super generous, check out my Teespring. You might find something you like. I've got sweatshirts, mugs, stickers, fanny packs, if any of you cool guys or gals want a fanny pack. I've got a sweater for your dog or cat. I've got all kinds of interesting things on there. So definitely check it out. Um, When you go on Teespring, you just type in the Crime Ghoul store and you'll find it. But that really helps me out. Any profit I make from that goes directly back into my show, into my software, into my fund for a new mic, because I would really like to do that to um, get good quality sound and audio for you guys to make it even more enjoyable. And yeah, some other cool stuff I'd like to put into the podcast. So if you're feeling super generous, take a look. If you can, I totally understand. Hey, listening is enough. The fact that people listen to me babble about these depraved psychopaths is enough to make me happy. So just your support is enough. But also, if you have Apple Podcasts, getting getting reviews on Apple really helps boost up my podcast. So if you're feeling nice and honest, I only want honest. Please be honest, don't sugarcoat it All I want is honesty So yeah, leave me leave me a review Rate rate my podcast on Apple Podcasts I don't know if on like Spotify you can do that But if you can, feel free to do it there Share this podcast episode Let your friends know about it If they like true crime I'm always looking to build this community But yeah, other than that That's really all I have for you guys I hope you're staying safe and sane During this difficult time I hope you're living your life as best as you can around this pandemic while being safe, of course. And if you're getting sucked into the political stuff that's going on in the U.S. and it's bumming you out, take a break from it. Like I said, it's important to be aware and know what's going on in your country, but not to the point of burnout, which I know myself and a lot of my friends have found themselves in that predicament. So please be kind to yourself. Be kind kind to others because... We are in such a time where there's not enough kindness. Make sure you're educating yourself and you're not just listening blindly to the media. Because unfortunately, I don't think the media is very honest. And it's it's a big deal to know what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. And just to come to your own conclusion, because of course, everyone's going to always have a different opinion. No one's ever going to have the same opinion. But make sure y- you are educated. That's all I can say don't be mean to people. Don't do that. It's a waste of your energy and what you give to the universe, you will surely get back. So please remember that. But my spooks, take care of yourself. I hope you like this episode. Now go snuggle with your pet or snuggle with yourself or your significant other and just give yourself all those nice, lovely neurotransmitters and endorphins and enjoy your evening. All right, so until next time, I promise I will try to keep up with my Monday schedule routine. But with the way things are going, who knows? But you will definitely get another episode next week. And keep an eye out for a lovely YouTube video because that will be coming shortly as well. So be safe. Make nice and good decisions. Take care of yourself, people. All right. Enjoy your night or your morning if you're listening to this in the morning. Bye, guys.